This episode of Giant Size is brought to you by Fracture, photos printed on glass. Made in the USA, you have a frame, you have mounting hardware, you've got your beautiful photo printed in vivid color like you really can't get printing it on paper. You have to see it to believe it. To support the show, go to FractureMe.com slash podcast, let them know that we sent you, and learn more about Fracture and save 10% on your first order. You'll hear more about Fracture later on in the show. listening to giant size the comics podcast that believes that comics are for everyone there's comic out there for everybody and every desire that your heart might have the desire that my heart might have the one the only mr john golson is joining me i'm moises chion john there are those who would say that you're the wren to my stimpy not the stimpy to your wren no 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 no. i mean you're the you're the chihuahua i'm the cat i'm the i'm the i'm the stupid lazy cat See, I think of myself as the stupid one, not the, not the wily one. You're the you're the one with with volumes and volumes of catalog knowledge, John. Why why did we start off talking about Ren and Snippy? What are we what, what are we ostensibly talking about today? We're getting into kitty litter recommendations. I think there's a lot of nuance to be had here. There's you know clumping, non clumping, clay, scented, non scented, self raking, so wheat scoop. There are a lot of options out there. Um, there are a lot of options for what you might line your litter box with, and uh, depending on what uh, what internet uh, gossip you might be, you, you might line your litter box with the work of one Mr. Dan Slott. <laughs> you, you might. You might. Uh, you might. There are, he has polarized fans in the past. One or two. He has a couple of things uh, that, you know, some childhoods that he's ruined. That's a joke that he told me I wasn't allowed to use anymore. So uh, now it's been used and it's it's never being used again. Um, we uh, we saw Dan Slott at at Dallas Fan Expo just a few weeks ago as we record this. We had met him a couple years ago at the same show. Um, it was a, it was a fun, wild and, and crazy convention. John, it's been a while since we've we've recorded a proper episode of the show. We threw together a one shot about DC Universe Rebirth uh, that came just before this one in the feed. Um, but I, how, how are you? Are you okay? I mean, you're about to move. Are you throwing away your comics? Are you throwing them in the garbage and saying, comic fan no more, John Golson? <laughs> that actually, I did the opposite. I stayed up till uh, like four in the morning reading every single Rebirth uh, one shot and all the new number ones. Um, just one after the other, after the other, after the other, like as if I were eating Pringles for my eyeballs. Um yeah, I just I just went through all the rebirth stuff and and quite enjoyed it, which, you know, you and I have talked, but I, it's probably it would probably come as a surprise to listeners of the show to know that it has probably been a good long while since I've sat with a stack and plowed through a stack. It doesn't mean I haven't been reading comics, uh, but, you know, that thing where you get a stack and you go, you read one, next one, read one, next one. I haven't done that in months. It's probably been since at least April. And what has motivated that, John? What, what what on earth has has prevented you from doing that? Is it just been has it been time? Has it been interest? Oh, a mixture of the two? What, what is it? Yeah, it's a little of column A, a little of column B. Uh, I have talked before how some of my Marvel habit has really uh, kind of been killed off, and and I wasn't picking up a lot of DC books up and up until you know here with Rebirth, 
Um, you know, of course I've got my image titles and things like that. And I kind of read those as they come in. So I haven't been doing the thing where I have my big stack. Plus, uh, I've been trying to save money. We had a couple conventions back to back. I've got a move coming up. So I couldn't necessarily just plop down a hundred bucks, the comic store, walk out with all my pulls and then, you know, make a day of it. Um, there is no making a day of it right now. There's just grabbing hours here or there as I can. Um, while I'm packing and everything else. So that also explains why I, I read comics all night instead of sleeping. Uh, that was the time that I had. So that's what I did. Are there any big standouts? I saw you mention Green Arrow on Twitter, something that I was looking forward to having. I, I don't remember how, but I came to the attention of Otto Schmidt's art, which just blew me away. This is a guy who colors his own work and folks who who put that amount of time into it uh, are often the kind of, I don't know, hand wrought, hand carved kind of artist that this guy seems to be. Yeah, the Green Arrow was probably the one that took me the most by surprise. Uh uh, a, a writer I'd never heard of who's apparently a novelist named Benjamin Percy, Otto Schmidt, whose art I'd never seen before. And I think that was the one I've never bought a green arrow book on a monthly basis. And as of right now, I probably will. Uh, I'm really, really impressed with the, with the, uh, the first two issues, uh, that I've gotten into so far. You know, what's interesting, I think is kind of you know, not to make this the rebirth part two episode, because we I are think, going to get to that. I think I figured this out. So the rebirth one shots were not jump on points, but they were points that for the most part bridge the gap for the new 52 readers. And it's kind of weird how these were sold, because honestly, like Superman number one is a better jump on than Superman rebirth number one or Green Lantern's. Uh, number one is a better jump on than Green Lantern's Rebirth. Number one, Wonder Woman, same deal. Uh, Bat, you know, Batman, same deal. And it's interesting to me because I, I don't think they. I understand they had the they wanted to sell two number ones, but I had friends that picked up the Rebirth number ones and were like, I, these weren't good jumping on points. Yeah. I didn't understand what was going on. And it's in retrospect now, having read them all, they were all bridges. They were all bridges for the new 52 audience to go, okay, prepare yourself because we're about to shift gears. Yeah. People who either read all the way through the new 52 stuff and needed the bridge or who read part of the way through the new 52 run and then gave up at a certain point who wanted that connective tissue. There were a few that were continued. I thought Flash was pretty good about continuing in. Green Lanterns is actually pretty good about continuing in and Green Arrow just straight up like Green Arrow the the green arrow rebirth number one is part one of a storyline that continues into part two in green arrow number one that was one of the few that was like definitely you need the first and second one but for a lot of these superman aquaman batman wonder woman they were all books that if you are interested in reading rebirth skip the rebirth issue and go straight to the first issue of the monthly so for instance the batman one says batman rebirth number one that's the one to skip the one to get is the one that says dc unit universe rebirth batman number one it's the most confusing system ever but uh but yeah the monthlies i thought were where things really pivoted and and ended up liking everything i i mean short of you know i i wasn't the biggest fan like you weren't of titans um but again that was not a number one to a new series that was another bridge issue um uh, but yeah, for the most part, and I think Green Arrow was the biggest surprise. Really, really, really liked that one. Uh, I dug Superman a lot. I dug Detective a lot. 
So good stuff. Yeah. If anything, I'd like for this to kind of be the uh, in the in the Paul Levitt style in the ABC plotting side of things, the uh, the B plot that teases what's uh, probably coming up very, very soon on the show, because I'm, I'm eager to talk about these uh, now that we've both read through what I guess we can consider wave one of the rebirth titles. Mm-hmm. Um, we can um, we can talk a little bit generally and then we can get spoilery. But for, for this episode and it was something that that I think is actually informed by what we were just getting into jumping on points, clean ways into characters, um, you know, taking continuity, not as a bad thing, but as an additive thing that, it, you know, the, the folks that have been reading for 40 years. Great. There's going to be stuff for you in here that is just for you because you get all of it. And for those who just want to get in and read some interesting stories, guess what? Everything that is true and most at the core of these characters, that is how I would describe the writing of Dance Lot. Would yeah. you say that's fair? Yeah, and speaking to jumping in for new readers, he's been my he's been my lifeline at times that I've gotten out of comics. Uh, a couple of times, he's been the person that kind of pulled me back in. Uh, once with his work on She Hulk, and again with uh, with Spider Man, uh, he's been instrumental in in key moments of my fandom when I was turning my back on superhero comics. Uh, for good or for long extended periods of time. And he, he kind of gave me what I wanted and what I look for in, uh, in superhero books and, and kept me interested at times when I wasn't. John Golson, comic fan, no more. Well, throughout this episode, you're going to hear bits from a creator spotlight interview that I did with Dan Slott while you were you were across the uh, the way uh, chatting up Candace Patton, trying to uh, trying to get in between Iris West and Barry Allen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you've had a chance to listen to this. I've listened back to it a bit. Um, and there, there are some things about, about, uh, slots background that I was aware of. There were other things that I learned. Uh, I, I find that I learned something, no matter how many different interviews that I hear from him, it almost feels like he, he approaches interviews the way that he does his writing, where just because, you cover one bit of the slot sphere doesn't mean that he's going to just recycle everything all in one place or another. There's some foundational knowledge, but there's, there's always some new flavor no matter where you're catching him. It's a great thing to be truly passionate as well, because it means that when he answers a question like, uh, you know, uh, about, for instance, what Spider-Man story first got him hooked on Spider-Man? When did he discover he was a Spider-Man fan? I'm sure he's answered that dozens upon dozens of times. But the fact that he does feel so passionately about those those particular moments and issues of Spider-Man and who Peter Parker is, he speaks about them as if he's just being asked for the very first time, which is really a mark of passion and a creator. Dan Slott, comics fan before you were a comics writer. I, okay. Strangely, well, no, no, no. some people wait, wait, don't, wait, don't run who, into it that way. No, 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 no. Can you think of a single comic book writer who wasn't a fan first? Dan, we said we weren't going to be mean. Okay. No, no. Because that's the wonderful thing about the comic book industry is no one falls into it. No one falls in. No one wakes up one day and go, I'm in comics. No, it never happens. Everyone fights and claws and comes up with crazy schemes to break in. Everybody wants to write comics. Everyone's like, oh, man, or draw or ink or color letter. Everybody wants. No one falls into comics by accident. We're all fans. So welcome, everybody, to Fan Expo Dallas, our creator spotlight on Dan Slott. My name is Moises Chuyan. I uh, co-host a few podcasts, uh, host a few of my own, a comics podcast called Giant Size. I went to high school and did theater with Robbie Dolnig over there. 
And that, that lets me tag to one of my one of my first questions that I wanted to ask Mr. Dan Slot. Theater yes. actor. Theater. Theater actor. Theater. Yeah. How did you How did you uh, get into performing? Was it Did you get into it as a kid? Was it uh, yeah, high school? Yeah, all the time. Um, I was I was going to I was going to do the the whole Shamir, um, but I kept I kept getting all the. It, it, I was very lucky. I kept getting the kind of parts I always wanted to get. Um, any any time I wanted a part and I didn't audition for it, I either didn't get called by or that's the part I would get. I like that sweet that sweet spot. And then I was auditioning for this. Um, this thing in L.A. Uh, for uh, a play where I wanted the specific role, and I was shooting for it. I kept getting callback after callback after callback for it, and um, they cast the entire play except for that role, and they did like a series of callbacks where it was me and one other actor, and they just kept doing two whole acts of the play, swapping us back and forth, and I was I, the director said he wanted me, but I was too short. Like, I didn't match with the romantic lead. She was, like, a foot taller than me, the person he wanted. And the other guy, he didn't want to go with it, but he, he said, like, I can't use you. But he pulled me aside and said, I've saved another role in the play for you. I want you in the ensemble. You're good. I always want to work with you. But you have to realize this, these are the roles you're always going to get. And you have a good look. You have a good take. Uh, it would be frustrating. I would go with... Um, I would go with friends to, to auditions just to keep them company and talk. And it would be for, like, male ingenue roles. And I'd just be hanging out with them. And the, the person would come up to me and go, would you like to read with us? Because we could use a best friend of the hero type. Yeah, no, no, no. We could use a young Danny DeVito. <laughs> we need a young Danny DeVito kind of, you know, because there's certain kind of actors that fall into that zone. I can name all their names. And I'm like... All right, and and then I, I wouldn't be ready, and they go, "Do you have a headshot?" I'm like, "No, I, I just." And 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 the, my you, friend, you guys started this. Yeah, my friend would always, uh, whoever I'd be with, would be like, "Oh, this again," and and I kind of realized if I stayed in theater, if I stayed or, or went on to TV or went on to film, this would be my career. I would be that guy, and I would be that guy, and every and that's who wants to be one role. And at the same time, I was also doing playwriting and script writing, and, and I grew up reading comics and loving comics, and I did my own comic strip for the, my college newspaper, which was a superhero thing, and um, I just thought, you know what, I'm switching full-time to writing, because when I write, I get to be all the characters. I get to be everybody. Your that, mind is the play stage. Yeah, it's awesome. You don't have to just be that one narrow band. And the, the, I think that helped me in, in comics, because when I broke through, I broke through doing funny animal stuff. Uh, Mighty Mouse, Ren, Ren and Stimpy, Stimpy yeah. Looney Tunes. Like, everyone kept going to me for that. And what I wanted was I wanted the superheroes. I wanted the stuff I grew up with. I wanted Spider-Man. I wanted Batman. I didn't, I didn't you know... Um, I mean, I had fun doing it. As a kid, I watched Looney Tunes. Uh, when I, I saw Ren and Stimpy before anyone else saw Ren and Stimpy, like the majority of people saw Ren and Stimpy, because I saw it on the animation festival circuits, uh, the thing that became the pilot. So I, I loved all this stuff, but this isn't what I wanted to do for a living. Um, and it wasn't until someone gave me a shot to... It was almost like I fell into the same trap I was going to fall into as an actor. And someone gave me a shot... Uh, by accident doing uh, Batman Arkham Asylum. Uh, that, that whole job was a complete accident. Um, I had pitched something completely else, different. I, there was a Justice League Adventures book 
Um, and I got to work on that. And then the Justice League editor said, you know, if I close my eyes and I imagine this was standard comic book art, not the Bruce Timm style, these are good Justice League stories. Would you like to do Justice League? And I'm like, yeah. And I said, can I pitch you other stuff too? And I pitched him a couple projects. And one of them was a Phantom Stranger book. And it, it was kind of like the twi- it was basically Twilight Zone in the DC universe, but Phantom Stranger was your Rod Serling. So every, every month, it would be like a different weird Twilight Zone thing happening to Dead Man or to Robin or to Mary Marvel or something else, but it would be like a Twilight Zone story. And at the beginning of the story, Phantom Stranger would come in and go, now let's see another strange adventure. And then at the end, he'd be like, oh, that was interesting. And, and that was the whole thing. And they liked some of the pitches and some of the stories. But I wasn't a big enough writer, so I didn't make the pitch. He pitched it. The editor pitched it in the room. And you know the game Telephone? Okay, well, the game Telephone happened around the room where someone went, you know, we can't sell a Phantom Stranger book. No one cares about Phantom Stranger. Where else could this be? And and someone in the room suggested, not me, I was in the room, what if these are all crazy ideas that are happening in the minds of someone in Arkham Asylum? (laughs) And, oh, yeah, so we could see Arkham Asylum as like a house of mystery, and then we go into this story. And then people started talking about Arkham Asylum. People forgot about this Phantom Stranger thing altogether, and it became an Arkham Asylum book. And I get this call from the editor, and he goes, and this was on a Friday, and he's like, okay, they love both your pitches, but they want you to do the Arkham Asylum thing first. And I went, great! <laughs> because I was like off doing Looney Tunes and Dexter's Lab and Cow and Chicken and Powerpuff Girls, and I was like, oh man, if I do a Joker rape scene in the shower, I will never have to do another Bugs Bunny again. <laughs> And what was great was when that came out, and there was that shower scene, if you read Arkham, uh, it got written up in the Washington Post, and they loved it. And Jeff Johns, I didn't know from Adam, really liked the Arkham Mini, too, and he was promoting it like crazy at D.C., going, this guy's good. Um, and uh, when the Washington Post wrote it up, there was a com- they mentioned the, the Joker rape scene in the shower, and uh, I get this call from my mom. Who, who read the Washington Post, who's, why did you have to write that? <laughs> can't, can't, can't you do more of the, 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 the Bugs Bunny and the Tweety Bird? Can't, can't, can't they write nice things about you in the paper? Can't you do that? So, John, for you, what was your entry point to the, the Dan Slott verse? My entry point um, might have been, well, to be completely honest, my entry point was Ren and Stimpy. I was a big Ren and Stimpy fan back in the day. Now, the Marvel books weren't my favorite. I don't know if they were kind of shackled. Um, they were never quite as weird as the Nickelodeon cartoons, but I definitely read them. Um, cause they were the cool thing to read in the early nineties. They were like the, they were the humor book. And for a while, I don't know if you remember, but wizard had that run and Stimpy number one with the, uh, like, was it a scratch and sniff card or something that was polybagged inside of there? That sounds familiar. And it sounds very on brand for that comic. Yeah. um, And that was like the, one of the hottest comics of the early nineties in regards to, uh, you know, speculator market and all that kind of stuff was that first issue of Ren and Stimpy. So yes, we read Ren and Stimpy. Um, So that was my introduction, but I don't think I really knew him as a name uh, until his run on uh, She-Hulk. I was trying to find out when his thing run began, but I don't think I, I don't think I bought his thing run um, based on him. Uh, I think, I think she Hulk was really where 
I, I really became aware of him as a writer uh, and, and kind of got hooked on, on what he was doing. It was a character that I'd always enjoyed. Uh, I'm a big, you know, I'm a big She-Hulk fan. And she's one of those people that like, I will. Uh, oh, yeah, I did pick up She-Hulk before the thing. Um, she's one of those characters that like if she's on a cover or I know she makes a guest appearance, I, I really like her. I probably got hooked on her as a character when John Byrne was handling her in the Fantastic Four. Uh, and, and I've always just dug Jen Walters. I think she's, I think she's cool and appealing. And that book was so dense and so funny and so intelligent. And it was, you know, this law firm handling superhero law cases, uh, just a, a lot of fun. And honestly, it's ended up being the, um, the comics that I've loaned out to more people than anything else in my collection. I've handed out my She-Hulk trades more times than I can count at this point and, and made a lot of new fans of the character. You don't have to know anything about She-Hulk other than she's She-Hulk and she's a lawyer. And maybe you know a little bit about one of the various different characters from across the Marvel Universe that find their way into her book. Um, but one of the things that that uh, that made it one of those frustratingly out of print books for so long is that it was so good and so easily recommendable and so accessible. Um, and with it not being as readily available for uh, for a period of time, actually going back, I think, to early chunks of of this show or the precursor to this volume of the show that we're doing i forget um because our archives need uh reprinting and remastering as it were um i i remember it being a point of frustration for us where you'd bring it up as oh man i love loaning this thing out i love handing it off to people and it's a great read but for a while the you know the thin trade paperbacks of it were all that had been reprinted of it aside from the individual issues and once those went out of print before they issued these new thick trade paperbacks that collect i think the whole run over what two volumes yeah um until they reprinted in in that form it was hard to come by um with the exception of digital and and even then it wasn't immediately you know, one of the early wave of things as people were really starting to read stuff digitally. It was it was kind of, I, I think, sadly, uh, sadly neglected in terms of, of keeping it in print and making it available to people. Yeah, the uh, the art is by uh, Juan Bobillo and uh, and then later on Paul Pelletier, or Paul Pelletier. I'm not sure uh, the pronunciation on that. Um, so the, the art is pretty good. Um, just this is good stuff. Uh, I think they still use all those Greg Horn covers for posters and ads and everything else. The thing you said that you didn't necessarily pick up uh, specifically on author brand, you picked up based on character brand because you're a big, big, big thing fan. Yeah. So again, a second time. And the, the thing, the thing that was going on at this time was that I was, uh, I was in college. I was going to Savannah's uh, College of Art and Design and, and didn't have a lot of pocket money for comics. And so my buying habits at that time were to try something. I would, I, you know, if I had some, you know, 10 bucks, 12 bucks, go to the comic store, pick out three or four things. And, you know, most of the time would not pick up a second issue. I would grab some stuff and be like, oh, this isn't really impressing me. Um, you know, then kind of wait it out and go back to the store, grab another handful of things. It was dark, dark times for me. This was probably like, two, you know, 2004 going into 2005 through about 2008 or nine. Um, 
And She-Hulk was one that I came back to the store for. Once I liked it, I came back month after month. The other one that did that to me, again, by mere happenstance, was The Thing. Uh, the only thing that proves is that Dan Slott and I have the same taste in characters. The Thing being my uh, pretty much my, my favorite Marvel character. Uh, and again, a, a comic hero that I will buy, you know, if there's a miniseries or a comic that uh, puts him front and center, uh, typically I'll, I'll pick it up. And so, um, you know, a new thing series came out, of course, I was going to get it right away. And it just happened to be written by the guy that was writing She-Hulk. And at that time, I feel like especially comics were super decompressed. 2005, 2006 or so, um, you would buy something and read it in like three seconds. It felt like some comics would have like three word balloons per page. and You'd just be like done with it. Um, and I liked the density of slots comics. I felt like I was getting a lot for my money. And that meant a lot to me at a time when I didn't have a lot of money. Well, um, and, and dense isn't to say overwritten either, because there there are those who will just almost as if they have a, a bottle of liquid word balloon, they'll just splatter it all over the page and just toss a bunch of dialogue on there that doesn't actually advance the story forward. You're getting a lot, a lot of story density, not just um, time density that's being taken up. There's there's some nutritive value to the to the way that slot builds these issues. It could be 18 pages and it feel more substantive than what somebody else does in 32. I think single issues we've we've I've know I've talked about this before on the show. Oh, yeah. I think single issues should have a beginning, middle and an end, even if they have subplots that continue. I think that the individual issue still has to have some sort of arc within it. And this was a time where everything was written for the trades Um and so you weren't getting an arc. You would often buy, I would buy like a Marvel or a DC book and it would be part two of something and would literally not have a story. It would be just, here's something that happens. And then the book would end and it would be like, okay, yeah. there's not, there's not anything in here for me. It'd be act two of seven. There would be no, no standalone mm. story being told. And even if there are arcs and there are within thing and within She-Hulk, uh, you are still getting a some kind of a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. So beginning, middle, and end. Uh, we don't have that third piece for uh, Dan Slott's uh, Spider-Man run, but before we actually start talking about that, I wanted to ask you specifically about The Thing, how you would tell people, so what, what is the story of this Thing run that he did? What 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 is going on with Ben Grimm? Why, oh. why should people seek this thing out? The first storyline in his run, if I remember right, uh, is art by Andrea DeVito and I think Kieran Dwyer later. Um, and the first the first big storyline in there is the thing on Murder World, which is Arcade's uh, crazy, gamified, dangerous island. Um, and so the thing is trying to figure stuff out uh, on Murder World. Um there wasn't necessarily like a grand direction to it. It was just sort of like, here's a hero I like, and I'm going to take him and bring him into the forefront because I believe that he's worthy of solo adventures. And a little bit of it delved into the fact that Ben Grimm um, would have sort of a celebrity status as a member of the Fantastic Four, so that no matter how uh, hideous he may find himself, that in the real world, he's kind of a rock star. Um, there was a little bit of that that seemed to that was probably in the original pitch deck, um, but it, it wasn't. It doesn't have that you know 
Ally McBeal for superheroes hook that you get necessarily with She-Hulk. My parents are great. They're wonderful. They're very supportive, but they're wonderful uh, reverse barometers. Like, um, we had a bit in She-Hulk where... um, because we played up the fact that she was a lawyer. So we treated it like Allie McBeal with muscles. And we did, she would take care of court cases that could only happen in a comic book world. Like, uh, does the Eye of Agamotto, the truth beam from it, does that take away, you know, is that, is that illegal? Uh, is, can a ghost, uh, can a ghost uh, uh, stand testimony at his own murder? trial you know like weird kind of comic book things you know is is someone who kills their past self and their future self is that suicide or is that you know murder like doing all kinds of weird law cases um and we had a bit where spider-man was suing the daily bugle for libel and she Hulk's law firm was helping do that and there is this sequence where they finally put Spider-Man on the stand. This is one of my favorite things you've ever written. Oh, thank you. It's nice to know I peaked in 2004. <laughs> <laughs> it's only kept going up since then. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, Spider-Man finally takes the stand in this one scene. And uh, She-Hulk's friend Pug asks him, like, so, uh, so Spider-Man, what is it you think uh, J. Jonah Jameson, why do you think he has it out for you? And he goes, you know, well, I've, I've, over the years, I've, I've dedicated a lot of thought and, and uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I've, I've really thought about this a lot. And uh, I think the real reason Jonah hates me is uh, because I'm black. <laughs> and you cut to everyone in the court going, <gasps> and Jonah going, I, I, I didn't know. <laughs> Some of my best friends are, I, I, and then Spider-Man goes, kidding, kidding, kidding. <laughs> And I ran that joke by my dad, and my dad went, that is not funny. And I went, this is gold. <laughs> Reverse barometer. So Spider-Man, we have one of the longest single writer runs on the character, you know, with some co-writing and some things mixed in and some crossovers and some um, some other, other strains of Spider-Man storytelling that have been done uh, and that kind of thing. And... You know, I, I read, uh, I read a lot of Howard Mackey, Spider-Man. I read a lot of J.M.D. Mateus, Spider-Man, uh, you know, coming up through school into high school. And one of the things that I was most concerned about getting back into comics, which is one of the reasons that we started doing the show is because I found things that I liked and I found I was having trouble finding stuff that I liked, um, I was worried that it was going to be difficult getting back into Spider-Man. And then I found that I could, I could start at the beginning of, of a big Dan slot Spider-Man story and be totally fine. Like I started at the beginning of big time and just read forward through uh, collected trades and everything. And see, I think I started partially into big time and was still able to jump aboard. Well, and, and that's the thing is I read all the way through big time and then I skipped some stuff and uh, and then and then just kept carrying right along with Amazing Spider-Man. Like, I, I think I skipped Ends of the Earth. If Ends, Ends of the Earth was after Big Time, right? Yeah. So I skipped that. And then I was I just kind of picked up with where Amazing Spider-Man was, um, you know, as it was rattling toward Dying Wish and all this other stuff. Um, and one of the things that that I really uh, passionately love. I, I was telling Dan this as we were making the incredibly long, never ending hike to the panel room is that 
is that it it made Spider-Man fun and accessible and multifaceted and multidimensional. And yeah, there are these various offshoots and there are these miniseries and there are these other things that he's doing um, in, in other titles. And you can read every single one of the crossovers and tie-ins and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when it comes to something, for example, like Spider-Verse that brings in all of the extraneous bits of the web that is the spider mythos, you can you can have a little bit of something to you know push whichever button you want, or you could have just read the core Spider Verse uh, series and not read as much of the spinoffs and and extra little tie-ins and that kind of thing and been totally fine. Um, and especially with with a character whose corner of the Marvel universe has been complicated at various times throughout the character's run for the sake of making it a more involved compound complex area, you know, from which to milk money and attention and licensing and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, I, I don't begrudge Marvel doing the, the thing that I admire most is that Dan Slott has managed to make sure that the core of the character is always there in the middle, regardless of, of what thing he's doing that enrages bloggers and people in comment sections and, and, you know, people who, who think that he's, you know, ruining a character, ruining childhoods, doing things that you're not allowed to do, but which hilariously enough are very much evocative of things that people were doing 50 years ago with the character. Oh, he is a walking contradiction, Mr. Slot. Um, him saying like, not, he didn't, you know, he makes sure that he doesn't go, uh, read message board reviews of silver surfer. And he is going to approach his next project after amazing spider band by never reading reviews for it. But we all know that Dan slot is also an infamous name searcher that he, uh, <laughs> he looks for himself online and, and gets himself into trouble and, uh, and ends up in political conversations. And, uh, uh, often stands by his guns. Uh, well, the figuratively, not not literally, when it comes to like the gun control conversation, or uh, you know, even people that may not like his approach to Spider Man. Uh, you know, I know he's quick to to block them and let them roll off, but God, that's got to be tough. It's got to be tough for a creator to be like, nope, not gonna look, not gonna look, not gonna look. Damn it, I looked. Yeah, <laughs> let me hit block fifteen times on these assholes, and I'm never gonna look again. <laughs> Never going to look again I, until the next time. You know, the, the, the thing the thing that I think is is a is a major credit to his character is that he says, nope, I'm not going to look. Nope, it doesn't matter. But he ends up looking, I feel like, out of a out of a compulsion for defense of the characters that he's entrusted with. It really does matter to him if somebody genuinely coming from a straight ahead perspective. Has a problem with something that he has done in the books. And I'm not talking about like the big, uh, the big twists, the big, you know, storyline kickoffs, the, you know, the dying wish, the, um, the, you know, Peter Parker is basically Iron Man. I mean, come on, why is Peter Parker rich? He's never supposed to have money. You know, those, those kinds, not, not that kind of stuff, but he's really concerned about the character moments, about the motivations, about the the characterization of of different things and different people. And he he wants to make sure that he got some things right. Um, you know, you don't give um you don't give Otto Octavius in the body of Peter Parker a little person girlfriend and not be extremely sensitive to making sure that that you haven't offended the people that you don't want to offend. 
you yeah. know, people from that community, the people who are are sensitive to um, the prejudice and discrimination that are tied up with with being being other, being something else, being someone else, you know, the same political fights that he gets into the the as as you put it so aptly the contradictions contained within him uh that lead him to want to know even though it technically doesn't matter is is coming from a place of wanting to make sure that he is that he is not doing wrong by the people that he's sticking up for that he's writing to that he wants to give a place in the comic book world who didn't already have it um and he's of of the top tier folks before they started recasting classic characters as other genders, other ethnicities and so on. He was populating the Spider-Man supporting cast with a wide array of the type of people that are found in a major metropolitan area of all different ethnicities, sexual identities uh, and orientations and uh, everything. And and that's that to me is is the thing that I don't think he gets enough credit for is doing that not for the sake of checking boxes, but because, well, uh, Peter Parker is a guy in New York City, one of the most ultra diverse places on the planet. So why not surround him with something that actually looks like modern day New York City, not the way that white guys would write New York City in the 60s? One of the things I like very much about Doc Ock, that when you see all of his love interests, when you see uh, the woman who is really stunner, when you see different people that, you know, when he's a teenager, when they show flashbacks, there are always people who are unconventionally beautiful. They're, you know, the, and it's a terrible way to phrase it, unconventionally beautiful, because the reality is we're all beautiful. Everyone is beautiful. Um, and that by having, whenever we see Peter in love with someone, they're not just everyone is beautiful. They're all drawn by John Romita Sr. and J. Scott Campbell. And, and they feel like you've wandered into a set where they, you got the wrong casting agent. You know, like suddenly everyone from Melrose Place is walking through the door. And that's not the world of Peter Parker. You know, over the years, they start adding more backstory to Mary Jane. She had this troubled past and her family and this. It's, but they almost had to layer it into it over the years and everyone goes well that's progression no it's not progress it's more course correction you know than progression um where it, it's kind of neat uh, but where where anna maria came i want you know doc i think and when i'm saying these people are going to go oh, he's putting doc Ock above peter no we're all different and we all have different strengths and we all have different weaknesses and nobody's got more weaknesses than peter parker that's what makes him fun. He screws up the way we screw up. He doesn't screw up the way a superhero screws up. He screws up the way your best friend screws up and you screw up and your cousin. Oh, that screw up. That's Peter Parker. He's us. He has feet of clay. Um, one, so that means there has to be elements of Doc Ock where he does something better than Peter Parker. There has to be elements of every character in the universe that does something better than Peter Parker. That's the fun of it. Um, and one of those elements is that Doc Ock, can, it, that seems to be one of his abilities, is that he's this kind of like chubby nerd with a bad bowl cut and glasses. He's sometimes able to look into people and see their inner beauty and to see what makes them valuable in a way that Peter Parker doesn't, hasn't really had the opportunity because he gets a parade of John Romita Sr. and J. Scott Campbell women in his life. You know, is that I wanted to have someone that you go, I really like this character, and she's awesome. Um, 
Uh, it, to me, the, the most fun of writing Anna Marie is when, you know, you don't even think about, you know, the fact that she is a little person. She is a little person, but that, that's, not, that's not who she is. We're not all defined by that one thing. You know, we're not all defined by the first thing people see when they see us. Um, so that's, that's the fun of it. Uh, my favorite thing I like about her is when she's nervous, she, she cooks. And she begs. <laughs> that, That's um, why I like her so much. I, I really can relate to that so much. And you, you write these relatable things into these characters that work so organically. Like where, where did Spider-Man touch you in that way as a fan reading it? What was your Galactus trilogy for Spider-Man? What, what was my thing that... The, for me, the thing that... Um, the, the story I loved the most as a kid... The, the one that there, there were these two pivotal Spider-Man stories. When I was very lucky when I, the, the era I was growing up when I was reading Spider-Man because I got to read three eras of Spider-Man at the same time because there was the books that were coming out, which were around the Ross Andrew time. Then there were uh, Marvel Tales, which were hitting the John Romita senior time. And then the pocket comics that were coming out, which were the Lee Ditko's. So you're getting Lee Ditko, these little things you can carry around. Back at, you know, the Marvel tales of the oldness, you were getting three eras of Spider-Man. So as a kid, you were just like, yes, let it wash over me. Let all of it wash over me. I love this. So I remember, like, the two stories that affected me the most, like, when I was, like, between 8 and 10, were the living brain issue, like, like Spidey 8, because that's the issue where uh, Peter and Flash are, are squabbling and the gym coach says, I'm going to put you in a boxing ring and you're going to settle it out after school. And Peter was like, this is great. I have spider strength. I'm going to destroy Flash in front of everyone. You know, this is like, I finally get to beat the hell out of Flash. This is great. And as a kid, you know, you have bullies and you have people picking in your school and you're reading this and you're like, this is going to be the most awesome issue ever. And if you know the story, of course, everything Peter Parker's, everything Peter Parker's in that story, which is great. So and that's, I think all the best Spider-Man stories are monkey's paws. Yeah. You know, you, you get what you want, but not the way you want it. You know, when they're not complete. And the other one was um, the, uh, I want to say Amazing 90, uh, but I read it in Marvel Tales, so it had a different number. Uh, but it was the death of Captain Stacy. Because Sorry, it, spoilers. Yeah. We should have warned you. Another thing he'll get in trouble for. But the, uh, <laughs> with the death of Captain Stacy, I was reading these three eras at the same time. And it never dawned on me why Captain Stacy wasn't around in the present. <laughs> you know, maybe he was just out for coffee or something. He's working so, a real tough case, undercover. Yeah, so when I, when I hit that issue in Marvel Tales, it destroyed me. It gutted me. It was like the first time, the, the, the thing that, that broke me about the Captain, and I was reading this as a little kid, um, was you know Spidey's origin. And in Spidey's origin, he has the power and he doesn't use it. And Uncle Ben pays the price. In the, in the Ben, in the, in, with Captain Stacy, he did everything he could, and he still dies. And it's like, this is horrifying that you, know, that you live in this unjust universe, you know, they, and you lose your second father figure, and you were doing everything you tried. Oh, God, I was gutted. That scene, and then the topper, when, when Captain Stacy tells him Peter and he knew the secret the whole time and you realize that all these years Captain Stacy was Pete Ross in him you know <laughs> and you're like oh my god and he's dead 
oh, he's like, oh, I was bawling. And I made very sure not to let my parents know that this comic book made me cry. Because um, I watched an episode of Speed Racer where it traumatized me. And I never got to see part two because my parents said, you're never watching that show again. You're not allowed to watch it. Look what this show did you. I'm like, I can't let them take away Spider-Man. I can't let them know. Captain Stacy destroyed them. Oh, my God. So, yeah, so those two were like, that's, that, those are my, my two poles of Spider-Man. I love that. In just a moment, we'll hear from Dan Slott about how Amazing Spider-Man 600 ended up leading into the big changes, the big reveal found in Amazing Spider-Man 698 and beyond going into Superior Spider-Man and Spider-Verse. But now, a word from our exclusive sponsor this week, the wonderful people at Fracture. If you're going to conventions, if you're going on trips, if you're going on vacations, if you're going and doing anything that you actually want to remember... Back in the days of 35mm film being prevalent, mostly the way that people would take pictures, uh, unless I guess they were just taking them with their minds. That was the only way to do it. It was the only way to do it. You take it to the pharmacy, you take it to the uh, the photo development uh, hut in the parking lot of the grocery store. That's pretty much what you did. And you would get these photos that would fade into pinkishness over time, depending on the quality of development uh, process used, the um, development fluids being used. You would get stuff at the grocery store and you'd stick them in albums and they would rot. The people of Fracture believe that those memories should last a lifetime. They've got a lifetime guarantee on their product, which is photos printed on glass. Take a piece of beautiful, clean, crisp glass. They print your photos on it. They print a layer of white behind the actual photo image to lock it in, to seal it in, to make it look great. And then they put in laser cut, laser etched foam backing. So you don't have to buy a separate frame. You don't have to buy mounting hardware because that comes right in the package from Fracture. It comes right out of the package, ready to stick on the wall. And it looks absolutely gorgeous. If you've seen these Retina Screen Macs, it's like the way that the images on the screen aren't just to the point that you don't see the pixel separations. It's like it's right there at the edge of the glass. You're not looking through a screen. You're looking at the image right there vividly in front of you. Fractures prints are made in the USA, in Gainesville, Florida. They ship internationally, too. So if you're one of our listeners, many listeners, actually, who are outside of the U.S., you can get this beautiful stuff sent to you. Just make sure that you've got uh, customs duties and all that kind of stuff uh, figured out. But they do ship to Canada, to, to wherever. So go to FractureMe.com slash podcast. Let them know that you heard about them from Giant Size and start printing your memories in a way that is actually going to last a lifetime. Thanks so much to Fracture for exclusively sponsoring this very special episode featuring the one and only Mr. Dan Slot. Now we'll go back to Dan talking about the long play of how he looks at folding in these reveals, how they come to him. He demystifies things to an extent, but one of the most magical things about his writing is the very way that he finds these discoveries in his writing. Here's Dan. I wrote Amazing Spider-Man 600. What, the way I work comics is I write them close to what's called Marvel style, where I write a plot I, where it tells the artist, uh, here's everything you need to draw. Then they draw it, and then I get the art back, and then I write script. So it's kind of like adding sound over a silent movie. 
and I, and, and I can tailor it to match the gifts that the artist has given me in the art. Like, you know, little expressions a character might have or a way a scene plays, and that way I can tailor the, the script to, to meet the art. So it means in a weird way I write every issue twice. And I wrote, so when I was scripting uh, Amazing Spider-Man 600, and I was writing that for the second time, I was coming at it with a fresh pair of eyes. And when I saw the scene where John Romita uh, Jr. has him like, he's going to take control over all these Doc Ock machines all over the city, and he puts this helmet on that's Doc Ock's like mind helmet, so that he can use his own mind to shut down all the machines. And in that story, we also found out Doc Ock was dying and had a year left to live. When I was writing that the second time, I went, Doc Ock is dying, he has a year left to live, and you're putting your brain in Doc Ock's mind helmet. You're an idiot, Spider-Man! He's gonna find a way to swap brains with you! You've given Doc Ock your brain back! I'm like, oh, that's good. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's how where the idea came from. It was never Spider-Man and a villain are gonna swap. It always came out of that 600 story. It, it always came out of Doc Ock did this and Spider-Man did that and oh my god that means Doc Ock can swap reigns with him because it wasn't just about swapping with any villain it was swapping with a villain who had like hours left to live and I'm like oh that's so good I like that because you, you'll read that story you'll be on the edge of your seat we're like my body is dying but I am Peter Parker and I must stop you I'm like yay I love that stuff anything that makes you kind of go oh Anything that lets you lie to children for that long. Yes, I love lying to children. <laughs> and drugs. Let's try to squeeze you in a too. few more before we got to get him back up there. If, there is, if you have not read Spider-Verse and you are a Spider-Man fan, you are in for a treat. You have saved the best for last. No, no Spider-Verse was... It's everything. It was insane to work on because um, I, I'm so happy people enjoyed it. Um, because when I was done, I was like, I am never doing this again. <laughs> I am never doing this again. No, to, with, with all the Spider-Verse prequels and the Spider-Verse epilogue and Spider-Verse itself and the side things, like the actual books called Spider-Verse that were anthologies, no two issues were written in a row sequentially. No two issues, because um, a miniseries that had to tie into it needed to know where to come on and where to come off. Um, we had multiple artists working on it. This guy's going faster than that guy. You know, so I had to have this giant board and I'm like, okay, I am writing prequel number one, but I'm writing first issue number one. Now I'm writing prequel number two. Now I'm writing first issue number two. Now I'm writing this thing over here. Now I'm writing, oh, this guy's going really slow. So now I have to write the last chapter. So it was like everything was written in puzzle pieces. And knowing that I script later, we knew that's kind of like putting icing on a cake. I'd be able to smooth over. I'd be able to like bondo any crack and go like, <laughs> okay, it all looked smooth in the script. But every single thing was written out of sequence. And then it all, when it all came time to fall together, and yeah, it made sense. <laughs> a, B, C, D, E, F, G, great, perfect. But I was like, my brain hurts. <laughs> it's like, and on top of that, it's like, how many Spider-Men were in that? There's like 12 million Spider-Men and trying to give them all uh, different voices and trying to do all this stuff and read all the comics. 
Like, uh, you know, oh my God, I have to read those eight issues of Spider-Man India again. I want. All right, Dan, <laughs> we uh, we got this crate of Hostess uh, cream pie. Oh no, no, for you. I was I was dying to kill Hostess Spider-Man. That was that. I had so much fun in the anthologies when I with the newspaper Spider-Man and Marvel versus Capcom Spider-Man and just being able to do the little stories and kill them. The uh, I have this friend David Gallagher. He writes a wonderful book, uh, The Only Living Boy. And uh, he, he's a buddy, and I know his favorite cartoon in the world is Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. Oh, you monster. I'm a monster. You're terrible. He's, he's, one of my, he's one of my very good dear friends. I've gone to conventions, and there's the woman who's the voice of Firestar, and I've gotten her to autograph something and brought it back for him, and he was so happy. And I'm writing this, and I'm like... Oh, he's going to hate me. <laughs> and, oh, my God, someone at a convention blew up the shot where I had killed them, and they're all there in that apartment with all the computer banks and the things, the couch flipped over, and it's all their dead bodies, and Miss Lion crawling over them going, <laughs> And someone blew that up and showed it to Dan Gilvezan, who's the voice of Peter Parker, Spider-Man from Amazing, from Amazing Friends. And I have worked with Dan Gilvezan on uh, Shattered Dimensions, and someone showed it to him. With, go, Dan, what do you think of this? He went, why would anyone do that? <laughs> we, we, were, we had Scotty Young as a guest uh, for the, one of his first Marvel retreats, and he was just so great. You don't think of bringing in the artist, but he's a writer, cause, so we brought him in, and he just had some, we, he's just so good in the room. We had him back every single week. I am privileged to be in that room, too. But he was one of the guys that kept getting asked back over, and he's still there, which is great. Um, but everyone else in the room had heard about Spider-Verse a number of times. And he hadn't heard about Spider-Verse. And now I'm telling him, and once he hear, hears about it, he comes up to me in one of the breaks and goes, you're not going to kill Mangaverse Spider-Man, are you? <laughs> like the one that he created? I'm like, he was so going to die. And I'm like... No, Scotty, I won't. <laughs> and he said, oh, thank you. And then I go over to, like, um, I go over to Wacker or Lowe, and I'm just like, they're all going to call me up, aren't they? Everyone is going to call me up and go, don't kill my Spider-Man. And he's like, and they're like, you kill whatever Spider-Man. <laughs> no, it was Breivort. It was Breivort. And Breivort said, you kill whatever Spider-Man you want. And then we got the, the ability to use the toy uh, Supaidaman and Leopardon. Supaidaman. Yeah. Oh, man, I love that show. It's the most, if you ever get a chance to watch Supaidaman with subtitles, it is awesome. He's a motorcycle riding stunt rider who, with alien spiders, who has a giant robot and a, a flying Formula One race car. It's Psychotic! It's the best. It's live action. And if it wasn't for Spider Man, you would not have had the Sentai Power Ranger shows. That did that with the putties and the robots. Spider Man did it first, and Toy based it off of that. So you owe Power Rangers to Spider Man. Um, but we we got the, and Breivort like me had this deep love of Spider Man because it's so psychotic. It's just so... You ever see the one with the, the kind of Japanese version of the Ramones and they're all replaced by robots and Spider-Man mows them down with machine guns? <laughs> it's awesome! You're like, what the hell is that? And the special effects look great, too. That's fantastic. But um, 
so Breivard had given me this speech, like, you kill whatever Spider-Man you want. And then we got the right to use Toy Spider-Man, he calls me up and goes, you do not kill Toy Spider-Man. <laughs> so everyone, different characters started getting these halos protecting them. And things kept changing during Spider-Verse a lot. Um, like, originally, Gwen was going to die. Spider-Gwen was going to die in Spider-Verse. Yeah, I know. I saw that shocked face. Uh, she was going to die, but she was, it was going to be a flip where, you know, when you think of our Gwen, she dies where she's almost like a, a tool. She's like a, a device, a plot device to make Spider-Man. No, Spider-Gwen was going to have the most heroic, noble, save everyone in the universe death. You know, it was going to be the most empowering female thing you could ever imagine. Everyone's going to be like, whoa. And what happened was uh, Jason and Robbie, um, they were going to do one of the Edge of Spider-Verse books. And they had pitched Spider-Ben, the adventures of Uncle Ben, who got bit by the spider. And this is one of the times where I put my foot down when they can't tell that story. Because we have a Spider-Uncle Ben and he's going to show up by this chapter, and he's going to do X, Y, and Z. And, but the art looked great, and they said, and they said well, we want, to have, we want to have Jason and Robbie doing something. What can they do? And I said, well, we have Spider-Gwen over here, and she hasn't been that developed. We just assume, you know, she's Gwen. Could they show the story as Spider-Gwen? And they went, okay, we'll throw that to them. And they ran off, and they, they created Spider-Gwen, and she was so awesome that everyone went, and the book kept selling out, and we kept redoing it, and they went, you are not killing Spider-Man. And I was like, oh, God, I'm completely changing the ending. We are, we are not shutting down the money machine. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> different characters got these halos at different times. And it was weird, like, uh, when Spider-Verse was originated, it was under editor Steve Wacker. And Steve let me do all kinds of things to characters, like decapitations and... <laughs> shooting people in the face and all these terrible things and Nick is like no I want kids to be able to read Spider-Man so you know so there's certain things that Steve wants that we Steve and I would fight over stuff and Nick and I fight over stuff but different editors have different mores they have different things they care about and that's cool Um, so Steve let me get away with a lot of violence in Spider-Man and uh, Nick he's not a big fan of it so I Things are, and Nick likes characters kissing more. Nick loves it when characters kiss. Expect more kissing. Nick, Nick likes kissing and web swinging. <laughs> Can we have some more web swinging? Yes. Can we have this kiss? I'm going to fight you on this. There's no room in the story for a kiss. Um, and with, with Steve, he had different things too. But when, Spider, when I first started writing Spider-Verse, it was under Steve. And the Morelands, in every single, uh, whenever they killed the Spider-Man, it was in a new graphic and horrible way. And Nick would read the plots and go, oh, you're not doing that. You're not doing that. So they all turned to, he snaps the neck and sucks out their life force. He snaps the neck and sucks out his life force. He snaps the neck and so I'm like, oh, come on. It's hard. He ate it. No. <laughs> so there, all the deaths in Spider-Verse were so much different and would be so much more traumatizing. And uh, there was something uh, Nick said to me once where it was something like, if you do this, little children will get nightmares. And uh, when we're working on Dead No More, I, when we started going, I went, Nick, I want you to understand something about this story. Little kids are going to get nightmares. And that's going to be awesome. <laughs> Because, you know, it's, 
It's like you guys watch Doctor Who. You can, if you should, the weeping angels are creepy as hell, right? Would you let a little kid watch that? Absolutely. You know, we're not talking blood and gore and viscera. We're talking, it's great when things scare you. It's great when you have a character like Jack Skellington. You know, it's great when you have weird things. Kids love that. Um, at some point, you don't want a mollycoddle. Uh, at some point, you want a really cool story where terrible things can happen. Or, you know, or else you have G.I. Joe and Cobra where, you know, ray beams hit planes and everyone jumps out in a parachute. Boring. I want to I see what's going to happen, man. So we mentioned favorite characters. John, how did you feel when you found out that Dan Slott was taking over Silver Server? I was pretty excited, not just because of him, but because of uh, Mike Allred as well. And and to to be uh, not to take anything away from your previous statement, because I don't think we've ever actually discussed Silver Surfer, but I am not a fan of that character. Um, I I I've never quite. I'll be completely honest. This is his run is the first time I ever picked picked it up on a monthly basis. I appreciate uh, like sort of the uh, Ron Lim era 90s surfer. I can go back and read those issues and I actually do like them. Um, but Slot Allred's run is the first time I've I've bought it monthly. I've always found the character a little um, ponderous. Yeah, there's he's always uh, the the universe weary guy who has the the entire multiverse on his shoulders to some extent. And I I was first introduced to him in uh, Infinity Gauntlet when I was a kid with my big cardboard box of Sears Wish Book Marvel Comics. Um, the only the only sustained Silver Surfer run that I read that I didn't consider homework like I kind of reverse engineered my way into being, oh, Silver Surfer's kind of cool. I've got him in my in my sticker book that I got at Kroger. And he's in this Infinity Gauntlet thing, and he's kind of neat. And, oh, I read those classic Fantastic Four stories. Wow, he's awesome. Um, honestly, I, I think the only run of Silver Surfer solo that I, that I read that wasn't homework reading, you know, uh, reading the lead up to Infinity Gauntlet, stuff in in back issue bins or uh trade collections or something uh was was greg pox short run on the character a few years ago um other than that i i I can say quite confidently that i was right there with you i i was seeking a compelling setup for that character that made me interested in reading it not just because i thought silver surfer looked kind of neat and he's kind of neat in these places where he pops up every once in a while and the 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 way that the way that they set up this Silver Surfer ongoing, not just because it has Mike Allred art and Mike Allred could illustrate the phone book and I would read it six times, um, it was was compelling. It was interesting to me. What was it about this, uh, you know, for for lack of a better term, uh, kind of uh, Doctor Who ish uh, feel for the character that made you keep picking it up after the first few issues? I like some of the alien worlds they were introducing. I still don't think I'm in love with the character Norrin Rad, the Silver Surfer yeah. himself, but I really liked a lot of the alien worlds and I liked a lot of the, the places that they visited. I'm also a really big fan of whenever comics do things that only comics can do. And there's an issue of Silver Surfer. I think it's number 11 yep. where they're caught in a time warp and the issue reads like backwards and forwards and loops back in on itself. Um, that's really a fascinating exercise in 
in sequential storytelling. Uh, probably one of the coolest uh, comic books since like the pizza dog issue of Hawkeye and in regards to being really, really creative and well-planned and not something that could be executed in any other format. That one in particular is something that I, I, I feel like is, is the sort of thing that when people say, Oh, comic book. Okay, great. Who cares? You know, I'll just read it on my iPad maybe, or I'll, I'll wait until the trade comes out or something. When, when the kind of ingenuity that was on display in issue 11 of Silver Surfer, uh, or, you know, like you said, the pizza dog, um, silent issue of, of Hawkeye, um, that's the sort of thing that, that, that makes it really easy to say, look, there's so much more that can be done with this form. And for God's sake, somebody's doing it in a super mainstream book too. Man, I really hope that, and I, I doubt this is the case because I didn't read it on Comixology, but how cool would it have been on Comixology if they were in on the joke and the book never ended? Like you just kept swiping and it kept returning you to that starting point over and over because that's what the book's supposed to do. Like if you have it in print, you're supposed to like turn it around and then go the other direction, which has you reading the book all over again. John, it would have been so great if they had executed that digitally. This is why this is why Marvel should have you sign a big fat NDA and write you a big fat check to uh, to have you overhaul their uh, their 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 various apps. Oh man, just an things. editor an editor should have called and been like, "Hey, Comixology, with this one, can we do this? Can we keep people stuck in an infinite loop of Silver Surfer number eleven until Comixology they Comixology would say, "Well, their, their d- devices do have uh, an upward limit on storage, but we could custom write something that literally only this comic would ever use, unless somebody else decided to do it this way." But sure, we're up for it. Mm-hmm. They're go getters. They're they're creative folks. Yeah. One of the things I like the most about your writing is that you really do, you wear your fandoms on your sleeve, the things that you really love, you know, you see the influence of Doctor Who on your Silver Surfer run, and having having spent, I think, a sizable portion of your childhood in, in England, yeah. reading 2000 AD, watching Doctor Who, Judge Dredd, Judge Dredd, you know, how, how have you found that to inform the, the projects that you seek to do next? Um, hey. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the reason the Silver Surfer book came a, came around, uh, both Tom Brevoort and I are really big Doctor Who fans, and um, we when we were do, you guys remember uh, Infinity when Marvel did that uh, event? Jonathan Hickman is really good. Um, we have these meetings uh, like three or four times a year where we fly in all the writers and we have these big Marvel creative summits and we plan out everything we're doing for like the next year, sometimes two years ahead. And one of the things we do, if we have a big event like Infinity, we talk about, okay, what new books spin out of this? What, what new directions does the Marvel Universe out of it so that the event has impact? It's, not, it's a big story and there's outcomes from it. Um, and when we're coming out of Infinity, they're saying this is now a time with how well Guardians is doing. Let's expand the cosmic line. What kind of new cosmic books should we be doing? And the first thing on the list was Silver Surfer. And... Um, I'm, I was working on Spider-Man. I'm still working on Spider-Man. I'm never stopping working on Spider-Man. Good. <laughs> my plate is, like, so full. But I love Silver Surfer. Like, I mentioned how in college I did a, a superhero comic strip in the paper, my school paper. It was a shameless knockoff of Silver Surfer. Uh, it was called Nuke Surfer. It was about a guy in a post-apocalyptic uh, landscape that surfed off the afterblast of nuclear explosions. It was awesome! Like Richie Rich and Archie and stuff like that. But 
my first superhero comic, he was like, I think you'll like this. And he, he started me with the three issues of the Galactus trilogy. So I kind of met the Marvel Universe with the Silver Surfer. Uh, I was great love for the character. And here we were pitching for Silver Surfer, and I couldn't say anything because I was too busy. So I was just like, I'm going to sit here. I'm just going to I'm not saying anything. I'm just going to not pitch for this book. And um, Axel Alonso, our editor-in-chief, gave a speech to the room. He said, okay, before anyone pitches for Silver Surfer, here's something I want you to know. I don't want to read a book about a cosmic hippie. No, don't give me cosmic hippie. That's it. That's my only thing. We all good with this. No cosmic hippie. Well, the problem is not that Surfer is a cosmic hippie, but that's pretty close to the zone where if your, your compass is going... You know, it's Cosmic Hippie. No, you don't want to read that, but it's still kind of close to the zone. And since he said, don't give me Cosmic Hippie, everyone was aiming their pitches 180 degrees away from Cosmic Hippie. And they were doing stuff like, it's Silver Surfer, and he's on an intergalactic Black Death Squad hunting down people. And I'm like, what the hell? No. <laughs> I'm like listening to like... One like stealth mission, Silver Surfer. What if the Silver Surfer became the Punisher? Yeah, um, <laughs> for I space. Just, I was just like sitting there, like this is horrible. This is, but there is a there was a a lot of people like you know your fans and you want to be in the community. You want to be you know you want to work for Marvel or DC or Dark Horse or Boom or IDW. I love that there's two Batgirls. That is fantastic. That is awesome. Double the Batgirls, double that, the fun. No, that is... No, no, I just... You, are you guys together? Yeah. Okay, because it would have been weird if you weren't. Yeah. <laughs> that is fantastic. The, the, down to the styling of the costumes. But no, it's just fantastic. Those are great costumes. It, wait, is that a baby stroller? Yeah. Is there a Batgirl baby in the baby stroller? No. Damn it. <laughs> okay. Because that would have... That would have been the, the, the capper as you hold up the little one. It's going to be Harley Quinn, but she... Oh, no, but you could have done, like, a whole kind of Russian doll thing, like... You know. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's going to be weird on your YouTube video. What the hell were they talking about? I um, can't see. Turn around, turn around, turn around. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but one of the hard things about being in the community is like if you're online or even if you're talking to someone, if you have a problem, you can mouth off about it. Or if you just read your comics and you're hanging out with your friends in a diner, you can just, oh, this sucked or this was great or this is, you can say whatever. Can you believe that they? Yeah. But if you go into that room, you know, you've got to be a pro. You've got to be a, you know, and I learned that quick. I had one fan meltdown in a room once. And I was like, oh, Jesus, I, I'm lucky to still have a job. I can never do that again. You can't do that. Where someone um, had an idea, and this is ages before uh, the Inhuman stuff we're doing now. This is really early on when I was in the room to begin with, where uh, someone went, you know, I think I know how to make Inhumans work. And everyone's like, oh, okay, okay, how, how do we do this? You know, from now on, Black Bolt can speak. And I went, what? What the hell? Black Bolt can Jack Kirby and Stanley and blah, 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 and Black Bolt's king of the Inhumans and he can't speak and he's mutant with the dog and the, what the hell were you thinking? What the, can Daredevil see? Why, why, why would you ever do that? And everyone's like, dude. You know, I just let every fan thing out of my mouth and everyone's just like, that's not cool, man. Don't, don't, no. Dude. No. Dude. Dude, you don't do that. Yeah, and then like someone pulled me off to the side and went, are, are you writing any humans book? 
no. Are you writing Black Bolt? I'm like, no. Like, why do you care? You know, like, so I kind of, so when they were doing all the Silver Surfer Death Squad in space, I was just kind of like, I'm not saying anything. I'm just, and, but luckily people were like, um, because it was, a lot of the stuff people were pitching was so off from Silver Surfer that no one was kind of going, yeah, let's do that book. No, so at the end, and you got to trust the room, that the stuff will, that comes out of the room will be good. That everyone kind of went, you know, none of this is clicking, and Axel went, you know, I agree. None of, let's table this. Let's talk about Silver Surfer at the next one of these. I don't think anyone's got it yet. We'll we'll come around to it. And um, you pulled a Columbo. Well, that excuse me. No, no, no. That we, that weekend, um, I was talking with Brevorn on the phone. We were just gabbing about stuff, and I went like, "Could you believe those Silver Surfer pitches?" He's like, "Yeah." Well, those were weird. And he said to me, what would you do if you were doing Silver Surfer? And I thought this was just two guys talking, like, the, you know, fantasy football or something. Like, oh, I'd, I'd have Joe Namath, and I'd have this, you know, <laughs> I'd have this guy back from the dead, and I'd have this guy, and it would be the best team. You know, and, yeah, Tom Landry will, you know, he, he, he just, I was just saying I would do this and this and this. And he went, if you did this and this and this, you could do that and that and that. And I went, oh, if it was like the, if it was like the uh, Russell T. Davies reboot, you kind of think of it where you're meeting Surfer for the first time and you have a new character that's an eye-level character, like a companion, you know, like Rick Jones was with Captain Marvel. And, yeah, oh, you could do this and you could do that. And, oh, what if her name is this? Because you could do that. And, and we just started talking for three hours. Where did Mike Allred's name come in? Uh, we, 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 <laughs> we started talking for like three hours about a book that he wasn't editing and I wasn't writing. <laughs> just because we, we were being fans. And then there's this long pause and he goes, write it up. What do you mean, write it up? And he's like, write it up. I want to edit that book. No one's doing Surfer. I want to edit this specific book. This sounds awesome. And I'm like, when would I do it? I'm doing Spider-Man. He's like, you'll find a way. <laughs> and what that meant was I stopped sleeping. <laughs> so, and going a little like, woo. And, and partway, when I was writing a lot of this stuff up, uh, Tom calls me on the phone. He goes, you know who'd be perfect for this? And I'm like, who? And he goes, Mike Allred. And I go, oh, my God, that would be perfect, because then Dawn would be an all-red girl. Like, when we'd be talking about Dawn Greenwood, we'd talk about her, like, our phrasing for her is Miyazaki heroine. So if you like the work of Hayao Miyazaki, we see her very much, that's her kind of role. If you see uh, a movie like Nausicaa, if you see um, something like Spirited Away, she's you know, she cares about everyone, she does her thing, she's very, but she is, anyway. We, we think of her as a Miyazaki heroine. But then you say Mike Allred, and I'm like, oh, and she's an Allred girl. I already love her. You know, I can already see her in my head. Oh, this is perfect. This is fantastic. Oh, and he can do Kirby like nobody else. And this is the perfect guy for this book. And while in the middle of doing this, Tom goes, oh, yeah, but we can't use him. He's doing FF. And I'm like, why did you bring that up? And he's like, don't worry, we'll find someone. We'll find someone good. And I just kept writing it in my head as if Mike Allred was drawing it. And we didn't have Allred lined up. And then FF fell through. And uh, he was looking for a new assignment. And Tom without, you know, went, went for him and went, we got Allred. And we got Allred? And he's like, yeah, we got Allred. FF fell through. And we're, he, he's more than happy to work on Surfer. He thinks it's cool. And I get this, um, it's either a phone call or an email from Mike where he was reading the first script and he went, did you write this for me? <laughs> I'm like, yes! 
<laughs> yes, I did. But it was like it was a pure fluke. It was like it was, I think that gave him a terrible first impression because it made him think I could write a book in like a day. <laughs> Here you go, Mike. You got hired yesterday. Here's a full issue. Here's a full issue. Done. And no, I'm the slowest son of a... Uh, this is going to sound self-serving, but I, I think the working on Surfer has just been... It's so much fun on so many different levels. Uh, he's like my first hero that I was introduced to. He was the guy I kind of did stuff with in college, and I was like... Ah. And uh, really, Mike, working with Mike Allred and Laura Allred, they're the happiest, nicest, most positive people. Never a, a bad thing to say about anyone. Really into just making comics and making them the best they can. And they're both so full of energy and positivity that I can just get an email and it says it's from Mike. And I don't even, it doesn't even have an art in it or anything. I immediately get happy. I'm like, ah, oh, Mike sent me an email. Let's see what Mike's saying. Hey, Mike. I, he's, you meet the All Reds and you'll fall under their spell. They're just wonderful people. So, and he's really into it too. And it's everyone, it's everyone on the team just trying to do their best work and trying to tell the best stories. And, um, and I don't, I, we're, we're something like 19 issues in, and, and I don't mean to jinx it, but I don't think we dinged one yet. Uh-uh. There, there's like, there, there are runs in Spider-Man, I'll tell you, I'll tell you right now. That two-part Molten Man story during Brand New Day, oh, that was terrible. <laughs> that was terrible. You, every now and then, you just ding one, and you go, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. The, the 50th anniversary with Alpha, Oh, that was not good. That was so not good. Um, that was a story that was supposed to be this double-sized story, and then at the last minute they went, no, we're putting it back down to normal. And I'm like, no, but it's this story. I think if you read it in one chunk, where it's the kid gets power because of an experiment that Peter did, the kid has no responsibility. The kid's a jerk. Spider-Man tries to train him. He fails. The kid's more irresponsible than ever, so Spider-Man takes his power away. It's a good 50th anniversary story. But when you split it up over three issues, it's all these fans going, he's a jerk. I don't like him. He's a jerk. I really don't like him. Why did you tell this story with this horribly unlikable character? I'm like, oh, you're supposed to read it more than alone. Like, but even with that, it was, oh, it was not good. But the art was gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Umberto Ramos is amazing. I, I, I have not gotten, like, a dog uh, art on, like, anything I've done at Marvel. It, everything is just so nice. But, uh, yeah, so, like, we haven't dinged one on Surfer yet, and I'm just amazed. I'm so happy with every single issue. Um, so that's, that's kind of been my favorite thing, because uh, the other thing about Surfer is... Um, when I was working on Spider-Man, I was going on message boards and I was reading reviews and I was like, and oh, just don't, don't ever do that. <laughs> because, you know, all the positive stuff makes you feel good, but there's so much more negative. But it's so much more negative about anything. You know, if there was a Mother Teresa message board, oh, she's a horrible person. Why did she help that sick person and not the other sick person? What a horrible human being, you know. LOL. But it's just like, it's terrible. It'll, it'll wreck you. 
um, and was surfer, I made a conscious effort not to read any reviews, not to go on any surfer message boards, and I'm so much happier. <laughs> I'm just like, this is the best thing to do. So that's an, if I do something, I'm, I'm deep in the pool on Spidey. So like the, whatever I do, if, if there ever is a day when I'm not on Spidey and I move on to a next thing, I'm just gonna follow my lead on Surfer and like, I'm not gonna read anybody's reactions. <laughs> it's not that I don't care what you think. It's that I really don't care what you think. <laughs> We're just having fun, right? That's a good lesson, right for yourself. Write for your friends, write for, you know, make yourself happy. Don't, don't write for anyone, you know, because if, if you have faith in what you're writing and if you have faith in the story you're telling and there's merit to it, people will come to it. And if you treat it like a buffet, I'm going to put a little thing out there of everything to make you happy, it's just going to be dreck. Don't, don't, don't make other people happy. Make yourself happy. Make your, make your teammates on your book happy. And, and then you'll all be happy. You know who's someone who does not get enough credit? Uh, Jeff Loeb. When you read a Jeff Loeb script, it is like Jeff Loeb scripts are like Jeff Loeb taking a softball and lobbing it over the plate. Lobbing it over the plate. It's like whoever he tailors his scripts to whoever he's writing for. So he tries to write the best Tim Sale script. He tries to write the best Ed McGinnis script. He tries to write the best Jim Lee script where it's all like, here's all the things that will make the guys who are drawing this happy. And those guys turn in, like, the best <laughs> art on those issues because it's making them happy. Um, there was an artist I was working with, who I love working with, who um, read a scene that I had where um, a character was being uh, chased by helicopters. And they contacted me and said, you know, I don't like drawing helicopters. You know, can, can I make it a plane? And I went, yeah, I got no problem. Make it a small plane. And he drew the scene, and the scene was gorgeous. Same artist working with another writer. And that writer calls me up on the phone, and he goes, I'm having trouble with this artist. And I'm like, this really good, great, big-name artist. And I'm like, why? And he's like, I asked him to write a scene with uh, this character being chased by helicopters. I'm like, oh, not the helicopters. <laughs> he didn't ask him to draw helicopters. He doesn't like helicopters. But my story was important. He wanted to change it to a plane. I'm like, let him, did you let him change it to a plane? He's like, no, it's, I can see it in my head and it's helicopters. Does it change your story? Well, I really see it as helicopters. You made him draw the helicopters? Yeah. And the art came in and it was great, but the story needed an extra chapter to go. And they asked the artist if he'd do that extra chapter. He's like, oh, no, I'm on to my next assignment. Now, me, my, that story I was working on needed to go an extra chapter. And they're like, are you okay with that? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. <laughs> Make your artist happy. It doesn't, you know, it, why? Why wouldn't someone do that? All told, what, what would you say that your, your overall feel for uh, Dan Slott now and into infinity and beyond, as it were, is you know what what kinds of what kinds of things would you as a reader want to see from him? What is it that you um, feel like he could Gosh. you know absolutely tear to pieces? I want to see him back on DC. Uh, have you read Living Hell? No, I haven't. Living Hell is about a white collar criminal that fakes crazy so that he doesn't have to go to real jail and gets put in Arkham Asylum instead, which is a very very bad decision. <laughs> It is a uh, understatement of the year. John Golson, come on, yeah. collect your um, prize. 
the overall story ends up involving, I think the demon and like some other, you know, stalwarts of the DC universe. But, um, it's, uh, it was cool. And I really feel like one, it's, it's a very different Batman story. I think the arts by Ryan Sook. So it looks really nice as well. Um, and I read that one digitally. That one's available on Comixology, so you, you can get all the issues of Arkham Asylum, Living Hell, uh, pretty cheap, uh, and is well worth reading. And I'd like to see him play over there. I know Marvel's got him on lock, but man, I'd like to see him play over there. And you know, honestly, my dream title for him would be Fantastic Four. I would love to see Slot take on Fantastic Four. Oh, Anytime God. he's had... You know, he's already had his hands on the thing. Um, there was an extended... Uh, a little bit of a crossover with the Fantastic Four. He's had Johnny Storm show up in issues of Amazing Spider-Man, and he has such a handle on those characters and their voices. If if I had a dream book for Slot, it would be uh, Fantastic Four. I, you know, he says he's going to work on Spider-Man until they take him off of it. I feel bad for the man because you know that comics change, and you know eventually... Brevoort or whoever is going to have to have some conversation with him. I guess is it Wacker on the Spider-Man books? Who's on the no, Spider-Man Wacker, books? No, Wacker. Wacker is Wacker has been with animation for years now. What's wrong? Yeah, well, with who's you? who's on Spider-Man now? Uh, who's the, the, the Spider the Spider-Man line is that Nick Lowe now or who? I uh, who knows? Your guess is as good Comic as mine. Fans don't know editors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we don't because we're idiots and we don't follow the showrunners of comics like like fools, utter fools. But, the point is somebody's going to eventually have that conversation with him and it's going to be sad. It's going to be sad to see him go. Um, you know, but I, I'm, there's a part of me that's ready. Like I, it's not that I feel like he's run out of Spider-Man stories. It's not that at all. It's just that I would like to see him do that kind of long running yeah. magic on somebody else. Well, if, if, like if, him, as, I would like if him it, to do that, like, you know, a seven, eight, nine year run on somebody new. Um, it doesn't mean I want him off the book. It just means, man, I, I, there are, there are books that need him. Fantastic four is a title that needs someone like a slot. It needs someone who has a big imagination and a respect for the past and a respect for characterization. So that's, that's my wish list. But, uh, anyways, if, if I, if, 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 uh, if I were, faced with you know if i had to trade dan slot no longer being on amazing spider-man to get him on something else for me it would be the exact same thing it would be the fantastic four if if there is somebody if there's somebody for me that no reservations whatsoever no hesitation i feel like could immediately take that book and and take it exactly as the covers have uh, have promised since the beginning and should always promise the world's greatest comics magazine it absolutely is Dan Slott. There, there are a few people that I that I think have as much incredibly exuberant love for these long lived characters that have all the baggage, all the continuity, all the huge extensions of their universes all over the place. Um, but when it comes down to it, I I um, I, I am happiest with uh, with Dan Slott, who is uh, who is on the playground where he wants to be, because I I have not regretted reading any of his amazing Spider-Man stuff because he loves it as much as, as for, for some writers, you know, just the writing of it, the grinding out of it is, is sometimes like getting blood from a stone for them. He, he is content with living with that agony and he does actually get it out and does actually get the stories told. 
and has has done so and found ways to to make to make concessions for editorial needs that aren't what we would typically consider concessions of, oh, well, I wouldn't have done this run this way or put in this character this way, but they made me. When he's, you know, put up against a wall and they're like, Dan, you got to do this. You have to do this. He finds a way to make it interesting and find something compelling to tell in that story. Um, and that's that for me is uh, is one of the reasons that uh, that I love the opportunity to, to chat with him that, that I uh, for a long time and told you that I wanted to do something about him because I, you know, doing doing uh, doing a creator spotlight on on Dan Slott is something I don't need to prep for. I can just show up. Uh, the, the man dearly loves comics and. You know, I'm sure that he has his criticisms and his snarky jabs to make and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, he has his opinions and things that he likes and things that he doesn't like and all that kind of stuff. When it comes down to it, the thing the thing that defines his work to me is this incredibly overflowing love for the medium and the characters that he loves. And uh, and I I wish that I wish that people would put as much blood into the characters that they're writing that Dan Slott does uh, and has for years now, after which point I think a lot of people would have run out of steam on Spider-Man as rich of a character, as great of a character as it is. I wish that I wish that there were there were that kind of dedication, not the kind of hedging of bets that I feel in so many mainstream Cape books is, well, I know I'm on this for six issues if they don't cancel us at four. So we'll see if I get to tell this story. And we'll see if I get to do this and we'll see if I get to do that. And even with him being conscious of the fact that, you know, he may not be on Spider-Man after the first 12 months that he's writing it, he was still seeding things in, putting things in. You know, I, I mentioned the the Paul Levitt's ABC um, storyline uh, structure for, for telling comic stories. And if there's something that I that I feel, whether it's emotional or whether it's functional in terms of the way that he structures these things, I don't know if he uses note cards. I don't I don't care to ask any of those kinds of exact how the sausage is made kind of stuff. But just looking at the product, it feels like there is this D thread. There is this real long game stuff that he is capable of doing that I I wish that more folks entrusted with these kinds of characters we're willing to do with the faith that it will it will pay off at some point and doesn't need to be super indicative storytelling of, hey, hey, by the way, by the way, pay attention to this. Oh, you're going to pay attention to this because three years from now, this one panel in this one thing is the only thing that matters about it. It's it's woven throughout the entire tapestry of the stuff that slot does. So that's that's the most fanboyish, slathering, slobbering uh, thing that I, I think I can possibly say about Dan Slott. And, you know, uh, whatever, you know, people can make fun of me. They can they can question my taste, but they can't take away my Dan Slott stories. How do you feel about mainstream comics in and of themselves? They're OK. They're not angering you too much this day of the week, this week, this month. No, not right now. John, you're 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 on television. Via the streaming magic of the internet. That's true. You're in a program called Hidden America mm-hmm. with Jonah Ray. Mm-hmm. Available on uh, on CISO. CISO. Which you can stream through their app or on Amazon Prime. S-W-E-S-O. Go check out John. They didn't pay us for that endorsement, but we're endorsing it anyway because John's in it and we love John. 
if you especially love John, you can follow him on Twitter and uh, and see the increasingly troubling kinds of gummy snacks that he finds in Texas stores. <laughs> Bloody gummy bears. Bloody gummy bears covered in chili pepper and blood joy. ooze and joy. joy. John, John, they can they can follow you at Golson, G-H-O-L-S-O-N, and find your uh, comic strip reviews at movies.com. Links to all that stuff's in the show notes. Um, anything else that you've got uh, coming up, going down, happening, uh, anything to, to promote, to mention any, any efforts of uh, particular interest for our, our wonderful giant size listeners? Not at the moment. Not at the moment. All right. Well, if they want to follow me, they can follow me at Moises Chu, M-O-I-S-E-S-C-H-I-U. Follow the network at ESNFM. Follow the show at Giant Size Show on Twitter. Leave us a rating and review in iTunes, favorite, recommend us, just spread the word, spread the love about the show in whatever way you can, and you very well could be the recipient of a magical randomized box of stuff, uh, which is my way of getting rid of stuff that does not need to be in my house, but does need to be in your house. Um, it's, uh, John, at some point, when we do uh, when we do our creator spotlight on Matt Fraction, you know what, what somebody is going to get? A fraction of a box. <laughs> a fraction, a, a fraction of a box. A fraction of the box that they will receive will include the Argentinian edition of Invincible Iron Man number one and two. Mm-hmm. In What's a, in that a, called in Argentina? Uh, El Invincible Iron Man. Oh, I don't, was, I don't that, have that's it right. Kind of a letdown. Yeah, I don't have it right at hand. Uh, but but no, they they just call it Iron Man. Uh, it's you know technically. Hombre de la Ferro. No, no. Like, Hombre okay. de Hierro. No, uh, yeah, it's uh, even even though things have uh, directly translatable names, uh, Marvel doesn't hold trademark on those things. They have a trademark on Spider-Man, Iron Man. And uh, and that's that is uh, that is a, a part of the English language that we don't mind mixing into Spanish. Those of us hispano hablantes out there. John, um, we 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 need to we need to talk some DC stuff. We we were getting away from big two stuff, but um this this rebirth stuff they has been interesting. Us back in. They keep pulling us back in, John. Uh. It's troubling. It's troubling for our, our bank accounts. It's troubling for our, our states of mind. We thought we were gonna just offload our, our reading interests elsewhere. I had started on the Bible. I just got to throw that aside now. There's new, there's new Green Lantern books coming. There's, <laughs> there's a, there's a new, there's a new guardian angel in your life. And, uh, and it's, its name is Ganthet. Mm-hmm. If Ganthet's even alive. Thank you so much, John. Thank you for having me again. And you realize that it was, we didn't mention this. It was Dan Slot that brought us together. It was precisely Dan Slot that brought us together, John. Slot will keep us together. How did Don, how did Dan Slot bring us together, John? It was his um what's what issue number was that? 698, brother. It was 698. It was the issue where we discover that Doc Ock has put his body in Peter his his mind in Peter Parker's body. Yeah, he put his body in Peter Parker's body. <laughs> That's a completely published by Eros Comics. Um, he put his mind in Peter Parker's body and that is the one where you went, you know, this guy I know has strong opinions about comics and seems to not drool on himself. I will call him 
I will, and see what and, he has to say. I, I will have his first uh, comics podcast team up with me. Our 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 literal first Marvel two in one uh, or Marvel team up. Uh, Marvel team up is the more apt title. I, I don't know why I would say two in one. How dare I? Shame on me. This is the thing. God, That's hello. why. That's why. See, there you go. See, that's why we're such a good team. But I, I thought, you know, how better to have him on the podcast since he doesn't have a recording rig or something. And, you know, he's he's clear on the other side of town. Here, I'll just have him literally phone it in. And so from the parking lot of a convenience store. You, a dangerous one, too. I, I could have been killed, Dan Slot. You phoned it in. You phoned it in, John, from the very beginning. And I've been phoning it in ever since. At least you're consistent. At least, uh, at least hey. we can thank everybody for that. And that that episode, that one has been fully remastered, recolored, and re-edited, and magically grafted into the uh, the giant size channel feed, which includes this main show, a bunch of extra stuff, extended interviews. When I actually get those things uh, out there. Um, so people can go and, and seek that out. John? Mm-hmm. Is it clobbering time? It is. It is. Well, That's we... the secret, Cap. I'm, I'm always clobbery. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks again to the wonderful people at Fracture for exclusively bringing you this episode of Giant Signs of Limited Commercial Interruption. Go to FractureMe.com slash podcast to support the show. Let them know that you heard about them right here on Giant Size. Save 10% and start making those memories last a lifetime.